Okay, good morning, everyone. So we are again a little bit treading water in this series until we can get back to our Colossians class led by Vicar. Last week we looked at the Beatitudes uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and I thought we would simply continue on today uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. It is simply an inexhaustibly wonderful sermon. Sorry, I'm trying to flip my pages here while I talk, and it's not going all that well. So, Matthew chapter 5, and what we did was we looked at the structure of Matthew's gospel leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, and there we can see that it is the foundational teaching of our Lord Jesus and illustrative of the rest of his teaching and ministry such that when we simply hear that he went to a given place to preach, we don't have to wonder much at the content. The Sermon on the Mount in, in, in any sense is an example of how it is that our Lord preached and taught and what the content of his preaching and teaching was. When we looked at the Beatitudes in particular, I think in Moses, or excuse me, in Matthew's own self-understanding, he sees Jesus as a new Moses. And uh, whereas Moses taught from the mountain, as it were, Uh, the mountain being Sinai, giving the law, Jesus has come to give us a new covenant with new content. And that new content, as opposed to thou shalt, is going to be blessed are. And the articulation of the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements, is going to in fact be expressive of a new reality that he has come to bring. And that reality that he has come to bring is best understood in contrast to the reality of this fallen world. That's where you can see the theme that is frequently called the great reversal. And it's where a parallel piece in many respects to Matthew's God, or to excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount would be Mary's Magnificat in Luke's Gospel, where you have the reversal theme being articulated. So, the, in, by way of Mary and the Magnificat, the rich are sent away, empty. The poor and hungry are fed with good things. The great are cast down in the imagination of their hearts. The lowly are lifted up and exalted. Do you see the reversal theme? And then you have the same thing fundamentally going on here with the Beatitudes. The blessed are the statements. Um, And we'll simply race through the Beatitudes again here in a moment with an eye toward getting into the new material that carries on with the salt and the light references uh, as well as Christ's relationship to the law. Let's begin then, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so again with the Beatitudes, we see that it subverts our expectations and in many ways turns things upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I talked a little bit to to the meaning of this, namely that as Jesus comes for the sick, not for the well, we can reflect on that and ask the question, are there any who are truly well? No. Everyone is objectively sick, but there are some who realize they are sick 
and there are some who think that they are well. Does that make sense? The same can be said, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Does that mean there are actually some who are righteous who don't need Jesus? No, that's not the point. The point is that all are sinners. There are some who see themselves rightly as the sinners they are, and there are others who see themselves wrongly as being righteous. You see? It's a matter of perception, not reality. And I think the same thing is at work here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the impoverished in spirit, the beggars, the spiritual people who live under the bridge. Okay? What's the point? That there are some who are spiritual beggars and others who are not? No. The parallel would be, blessed are you if you recognize that you are a spiritual beggar, that you recognize that you are poor in spirit. In the same way, blessed are you if you recognize you are a sinner. Blessed are you if you recognize that you are sick. Why? Because then if you are sick, Christ has come to save you. If you are a sinner, Christ has come to have mercy on you. If you are poor in spirit, Christ has come to give to you the kingdom of heaven, the reign of heaven. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the best way to understand that, and it does indeed subvert expectations. Because the, you know, even a cursory reading of the character profile of, let's say, the Pharisees, they view themselves as rich in spirit, as righteous as well, as distinguished from those who are poor in spirit, sinful, and sick. Okay, and then um, we noted that with this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, as in present tense, the kingdom of heaven. And we see an inclusio between Beatitude 1 and 8 with the present tense, theirs is the kingdom or reign of heaven, present tense reality. Okay, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, there's the future tense, uh, they shall be comforted. And we went into this at length the last time, so I'm not I'm just doing a very cursory reading here. Okay, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So again, subverting expectations because one wouldn't view it as a blessed thing to be mourning. And yet that's what Christ says. One wouldn't view it as a blessed thing to be meek or humble. But that's what Christ says it is. So again, I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but he is speaking into creation a new reality, a new covenant, a new existence found in him in which these things are true so blessed are the meek for or the humble for they shall inherit the earth we spent a lot of time talking about that it doesn't mean milk toast deferring in all instances or any other such thing but one who is uh, humble and lowly of heart Okay, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, again, throughout the future tenses, continuing to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, of course, worth pointing out is that this whole group of blessed, it's all referring to the disciples of Jesus. It's all referring to his church. We are those blessed ones he is describing. In some respects, because we're one with him, these beatitudes describe him. I just don't think they're the end-all be-all. The juxtaposition between the fourth beatitude and verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That would mean they don't have it. They're to receive that righteousness from another. Thus, they shall be satisfied. And verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Sometimes this is interpreted as the sinless or the righteous. But that flies in in the face of the sense of the other Beatitudes. So to be pure in heart does not here mean to be sinless but to be rather repentant and forgiven with a right conscience. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
Okay, so David, though a sinner, can have a clean heart. That's what it means here to have a pure heart, the language being virtually identical, katharoi, purity of heart or cleanness of heart. So to be in a forgiven state of right conscience. And that's and then again with the future promise that we will see or behold God. Okay, blessed are the peacemakers, which I don't prefer it for its beauty. Peacemakers sounds better, but I prefer it because it subverts our sense of what a peacemaker is. Blessed are the peace doers. Blessed are the shalom doers. Blessed are those who bring in the way of Christ into the world. Okay, that's more what this is saying, as opposed to the narrow interpretation that frequently jumps into our minds of, okay, there's two conflicted parties. You've got to jump in the middle and try to make peace between them. That's what a peacemaker is. That's far too narrow for what our Lord is here teaching. To be a peace doer, one who walks in the shalom of Christ, the peace of Christ, the wholeness of Christ, and puts that forward into the world. Blessed are they, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, and then we get to the eighth, where we're going to see the inclusio with the present tense. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now again, this completely subverts expectations because no one says, you know, I think it'd be really blessed to get persecuted today. I'd really love to be fined or imprisoned or, you know, maybe tortured a little bit. But Christ subverts all expectations by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Okay, the same word that we found in the fourth beatitude, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So again, we hunger and thirst for it, we don't have it, and yet we do grasp hold of it in some sense um, because we're persecuted for it. And then Christ goes on to say, for theirs is, estin, there's the present tense, the kingdom of heaven, which again is the inclusio phrase back in the first beatitude, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, and then the ninth beatitude turns to the second person plural. Blessed are you. Oh, but not when everybody says nice things about you and compliments you and has parties in your honor. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, not because you're a jerk, but on my account. And so what's, what's being stated here is like, look, the servant isn't greater than the master. If they hated and persecuted the master, if you're faithful to him, they're going to hate and persecute you in one degree or another. Because of, because of where we are in a country that allows a great deal of religious freedom, we don't feel that as acutely as maybe other Christians in the world or other Christians throughout history have felt that. And yet, we're, it's not entirely alien to us. You know that there are things that you cannot say at the Thanksgiving table because family, certain family members have fallen away from the faith or grasped hold of political or religious ideas that are contrary to the faith. And if you say something, what's going to happen? There's going to be a fight. Okay, This is, um, even just on a very small scale, evidence that insofar as we bring the light of Christ into the world, the darkness is going to contend against it. Now, the darkness cannot overcome it, and that's our promise from Christ, but the darkness will contend against it. Okay, so the next time you face any kind of revilement or persecution or someone is speaking all kinds of evil against you because you have said or done the right thing, the thing that Christ would have you say or do, then rejoice. Because you're blessed. And that's exactly how verse 12 
continues Jesus' statement, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Again, Christ laying out this foundational truth that there is indeed reward in heaven, and that reward in heaven, again, is what renders our sacrifices in this life particularly meaningful. They are not simply overlooked by God. God does not look down at our sacrifices, particularly where we know that saying or doing the right thing is going to lead to our suffering. When we make that decision anyway, God doesn't say, yeah, well, that's just what I expect from you. So, uh, It's not like God looks down upon it and goes, ah, well, I don't really care. He's not in the least bit indifferent. Rather, he is watching and planning and preparing our reward in heaven, which is to say everything is meaningful, is seen by God, is treasured by him, and will be rewarded. So that's great encouragement to say the right thing and do the right thing, even if there's going to be an earthly cost. And one of the anchor points Christ gives us is there will be an earthly cost, but there will be a heavenly reward that will far eclipse that earthly cost and will make the earthly cost look as though it were nothing. And that, by the way, is one of the ways in which we can be certain that Christ isn't laying out a meritorious kind of system of, hey, if you do X, you'll get Y, and X and Y will be commensurate. No. You do X and you will get infinitely greater than X as your reward. Okay, Because this isn't meritorious. God is good and is gracious and will reward you far beyond anything that you have earned or merited. It's the gracious nature of his rewarding. So uh, an analogy um, to this would be, you know, I want my son to learn how to mow the lawn. Of what value is his mowing the lawn unto me as a father? Not much. He's going to mow poorly in many various crooked and inefficient lines. He's going to miss giant sprigs and clumps of grass. I'm going to beckon him on his knees to look with me at the grass line and see all the ones standing up across the yard. He's going to take it off the edge and scalp the heck out of the edge of the grass so that there's nothing but dirt. And and then at the end of all this, what am I going to do? I'm going to say, well, due to the damage you've done and the extra time you've cost me, maybe you should pay me. (laughs) But no, what am I going to do? Because I'm a father and I want to encourage him in this and I want him to do more and I want him to realize the value of this. I'm going to reward him well beyond what is merited. I'm going to give him $5 or whatever it is. We actually in real life haven't settled on a price yet. But I'm going to pay him what his work, even though like if he didn't do the work, he wouldn't get anything. So in that sense, there's a nugget or a granule of merit. But then where the whole merit schema is blown up is when I evaluate the work and say, it's, it would have been better for him not to have done it, but I'm going to pay him something that is not commensurate to that, but above and beyond. You see why? Because... He's my son and I love him. I have many motivations there, including his own self-improvement, his own sense of value and work ethic, but also just because I love my son. So that's similar to how God views us and rewards us in this life and in that life which is to come. He looks at us kind of botching it, scalping the lawn and missing the sprigs, and he rewards us abundantly for what our efforts are. Are. So again, great, or rather, your reward is great in heaven. And here, when you find yourself persecuted for Christ's sake, you are in rare and fine company. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So a beautiful statement. And something we often don't recall is that when you're reading a minor or major prophet of the Old Testament, almost all of them were martyred. Almost all of them had a miserable go. 
and were treated shamefully and poorly and imprisoned and uh, mocked and publicly uh, humiliated and ultimately offed. And so insofar as you participate in any of that, um, you receive them and they receive you into that uh, way of faithfulness to God. Okay, so subverting expectations. And of course, all of this very poignant and powerful because at the time that Christ is preaching this sermon, he already knows he's on his way to the cross. He already knows that the cross shape, the cruciform shape of his life will then be the cross shape, cruciform shape of the life of his disciples. One more layer is that decades after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, or at least, let's say, a decade later, when Matthew sits down to write this gospel, the Holy Spirit bringing these events back to his mind, Matthew understands that this is the end and so of Jesus to be crucified and to be raised. And so as he records and pens this, Matthew himself is no stranger to these sayings of Jesus. The church of the first century is no stranger to these sayings of Jesus and to their reality in their midst, that to be a Christian is going to be to be attacked by the devil the world, and the world. All right, that... Um, Brings to a close then the section of the Beatitudes, which of course is a little artificial because he just goes right on with the second person plural in verse 13 and 14, which really hangs together with 11. Blessed are you, second person plural, y'all, okay? And then in 13 and 14, y'all are the salt of the earth and y'all are the light of the world. So that second person plural, that's what I mean. English just doesn't have a distinction there. Before we move on, any uh, final thoughts, comments, clarifications in regard to the Beatitudes? Everybody's okay? When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, who does he have in mind? Who is the referent of this second person plural, y'all? Those who believe in him. Disciples. That really is the assumption of all the biblical texts, unless explicitly stated otherwise, is that they're written for and speaking to disciples. Okay. So that's where, you know, in the men's study, we've been looking at the parables and why Jesus teaches in parables and how this works and how we should receive and understand those parables, how we should hear them and pay attention to them and to what end. And the entire presupposition of this is that you're a disciple of Christ. The same is true as we're sitting here reading Matthew's gospel is that we are disciples. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, we don't have to wonder who he's talking about. And he is simply declaring that if we are his disciples, then we are the salt of the earth. Okay, I don't want to get lost in these details because they're kind of neither here nor there. Obviously, salt flavors, salt preserves, salt is uh, frequently a part of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Salt would be included with the sacrifices. So there are these various sort of cultural considerations we can have when we hear the word salt and they can flavor pun intended our understanding of the word salt but neither none of those are necessary for grasping what Jesus is saying here in verse 13 you are the salt of the earth and that's present tense if salt has lost its taste If you are a disciple of Jesus, but you have lost your taste, you have lost that which distinguishes you as a disciple, how shall its saltiness be restored? So if salt loses its flavor, how do you get the flavor back in salt? Anybody know? Oh, you can't. You can't get the flavor back in anything, you know, or maybe very few things. We'd have to scratch our heads for some kind of analogy where you could get the flavor back into it. But if salt's lost its flavor, it's worthless. If you lose that which distinguishes you from the world, 
and you're worthless. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Is that a position you want to be in? No. So Christ is the light of the world. In him you, or sorry, I'm not on the, sorry, you jumped ahead. We're on salt. Um, By the way, there is is reference to Christ being a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And so there is, uh, and as I mentioned, salt showing up in the sacrifices. There's a potentiality to see that, that Christ is the salt of the earth in that respect, that Christ is that which... um, is part and parcel of the sacrifice or renders sacrifice worthy even in that sense. But I don't know that all that's in view here. Um, We could certainly say that Christ is distinct from all else that is part of the world and in him we share that distinctness and that would be the case that's being stated here. Okay, so the point then is don't lose your distinctness, don't lose your taste that is not easily re-infused and then if you become no different than the world, then you're no good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Okay, please. How can you lose your, your saltiness? Yeah, so um, again, this is kind of a terrible way of putting it, but if you lose Christ, you lose your Christiness. Okay, <laughs> if you lose that which makes you definitively salt, uh, definitively a disciple then you become indistinguishable from the world. So we might say in the absolute sense, do you believe in Christ or not? Okay. If you believe in Christ, then you have then you are the salt of the earth. All right? And you have flavor. Now, we might play with Jesus idea here and say insofar as one embraces the ways of Jesus' kingdom and of Jesus himself, one becomes ever more distinct from the world, ever more flavorful and different. Does that make sense? The difference between salt and earth is if you put your finger in earth and taste it, it's going to taste like nothing or it's going to taste gross. You know, If you put your finger in salt and taste it, it's immediately going to taste like salt. It's going to have that explosion of flavor in your mouth. Probably make you want to get a drink of water, too. But there's that difference, right? So the key difference between a disciple and an unbeliever is Christ. The key difference is baptized and living in baptism or not baptized, not living in baptism. Uh, Walking in the ways of the Lord, not walking in the ways of the Lord doing the right thing and suffering for it, doing the wrong thing and living and let live in the world. Uh, And then we can, of course, go back to the Beatitudes and really flesh this out with each of the Beatitudes if we really wanted to. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness or hungering and thirsting for uh, the next gadget that's supposedly going to make you happy. So we could do this through all the, all the Beatitudes and really flesh out what it means to be salt in that sense, distinct from the world. So um, in 11 it says, Blessed are you when others revile you. Hmm. If you are a Christian and you revile others or persecute others or utter evil against them, you become the salt that's lost its taste because... I mean, there, no, there's a correlation there for yeah, sure. The, the, so the key um, to not getting lost in the rhetoric of verse 11 and 12 is uh, falsely on my account. That's really the anchor point of the entire statement. So, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. I mean, people do this all the time to other people, period. It's the way of the world. But Christ is talking about when that happens to you and when it happens to you falsely on my account. Because of your belief. Exactly. Now, what Christ does not say is that Christians cannot revile others. The Bible is filled with Christians reviling others. Now, why are we reviling them? 
to bring them to repentance and or to make it so that other people won't follow them in their foolishness. So if they revile falsely... Yeah, reviling falsely is obviously going to be inherently wrong. No Christian reviles falsely. But I would argue that to revile is not in and of itself. Uh, to, let's Even if we were to kind of define uh, revile um, as uh, criticize, mock, um, make one to feel stupid... What other kinds of words or ideas come into mind when you hear reviling? Shame. Shame, right. Uh, That would not, none of those things that I've mentioned nor shame would be off the table. They're not inherently evil. Why is one using them? Think of one story. It probably has all the reviling you need in it. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Mm -hmm. Where's your God? Maybe he's on the potty. So we're mocking, we're reviling, we're shaming, we're denigrating. Why? Well, that those prophets would turn from their Baal worship, sure, but that's probably not in view as they're slashing themselves and carrying on. But who is then the reviling for? The Israelites who are watching this, and it's they who need to be made aware of the prophets of Baal, what they're up to and how foolish it is. Make sense? So to revile, you know, when others revile us, persecute us, utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on Christ's account, that is when we ought to rejoice and be glad, realizing our reward is great in heaven. Make sense? Help? Okay. So again, it is it is your connection to Christ, your Faith and confession of his word, your living and walking in his word, that is going to make you distinct in the earth. It's going to make you salt of the earth. That's why Christ just says here to his disciples, plural, you are the salt of the earth. But he warns us not to fall away. Salt that has lost its taste is a disciple who has fallen away from him and his ways. If salt has lost its taste, how shall it be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's a blessing and a warning. You are the salt of the earth, but you may lose your saltiness. So there's a sense in which be on guard. All right, we'll get, um, we'll get a little bit more of the sense of saltiness as he brings up this other sort of parabolic statement in verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now, a more close connection in this one, evidently, than salt, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and in him we are lights. But here, none of that, at least explicitly in view, as Jesus simply says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Again, plural. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And most have taken this as a reference to the church. So, you, plural, that is, my disciples, are like a city set on a hill. Now, is there a direct parallel here? Who knows? But if there were, one could envision a new Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the city set on the hill. So, this would be a new Jerusalem. Taking the Pauline idea of the Jerusalem uh, from above and the Jerusalem from below. Even if we don't need to get that specific, and of course we don't, Just to leave it, any city set on a hill, that's what you are. You're shining in the darkness, okay? It can't, you know, even in the light, you're seen. The city is seen on a hill, and in the darkness, it's seen all the more. That's what it is to be a church. So, again, what what would the point be? You say, well, I'm going to follow Christ, but I'm going to live just like all all the people in the world live. Your salt that's lost its saltiness. I'm going to be in Christ. I'm going to be the light of the world, but I'm going to hide and blend in with everyone else in the world. No, you're not. Because you, plural, are a city set on a hill if you are my disciples. You're going to be obvious in the day and in the night. 
So, if anything, Jesus' whole point in these first two statements, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the earth, is as my disciples, you're going to stand out as different. And of course, that's already been articulated in the Beatitudes, nationally, but here just outright stated. You'll see then how the next verses flow with this same principle. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. If the basket's big enough, that's just foolish. If the basket's not perforated enough, it's going to eventually just put out the light, snuff out the light. So people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. I don't make you a Christian to hide in the world and act as though you weren't a light, to act as though you were no different than the unbelievers. That's not what I'm doing with you, plural. So people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. So the parallel would be, you are the light, Christ has come and lit the lamp, his church, He doesn't do so to put it under a basket, but rather to put it on a stand. Notice the parallel between the city set on a hill and the lamp set on the stand. And the lamp gives light to all the house. That would be all the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others, again plural, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, this is going to be nuanced in uh, chapter 6, but the same sermon where Jesus critiques the Pharisees for doing their good works to be seen by men. Now, how do you reconcile those two surface-level apparent contradictions? Here in chapter 5, to that they may see your good works, and in chapter 6, so that no one sees your good works but your Father who is in heaven. How do you reconcile those? Okay, great point. So, the Pharisees are doing their good works such that people give glory to who? Them. Look what a great prayer I am. Look how many alms I give to the poor. Look at how strenuously I fast. All the glory and all the reward is going right into their own egos. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, they have received their reward. So, We don't want to be Pharisees, so we do this thing called, let's be the opposite of the bad guys, and then we end up just being a different kind of bad guy. The Pharisees do good works, or do their works, in order to be seen by men that they might receive glory. Okay, I've got it, let's just not do good works. And let's definitely not do any good works that might draw attention Is that a correct answer, a correct response to the error? No, that's an example of how the opposite of one error is just an opposite error. So what's the middle ground? It's right here. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Notice he doesn't say the works of God done through you. There's no embarrassment with Jesus saying they are your good works. That they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father who is in heaven. So the difference between a Christian good work and a Pharisee good work, chapter 5 versus chapter 6, is a Christian good work is in fact done to be seen, but in such a way that men glorify God. A pharisaical good work, which of course is no good work at all, is done that men may see and give glory to the Pharisees. So the distinction is not that men are doing good works. The distinction is not that men are doing good works to be seen. 
The distinction is that the Christian's good works are done so that men may see and glorify the Father. A Pharisee's good works are done so that they may be seen and glorify the man. See the distinction? Okay, all important, and again, Jesus' foundational statement, because Matthew 5, this statement precedes Matthew 6 and his critique of the Pharisees' good works, air quotes, The foundational statement is here to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, light and salt meant to have a positive effect on the world to be distinct from the world. And these are just, again, Jesus is laying out absolutely foundational Uh, very simple yet very profound aspects of what it means to be his disciple. Okay, so is there any embarrassment with you saying to yourself, I am the salt of the earth? Or is there any embarrassment in saying, I am the light of the world? No. I mean, we may indeed feel unworthy of these things, But this is what Christ says, and we're not going to make him a liar. So we're going to believe it, unworthy though we be, and live it, knowing that the world is not always going to receive it as the good that it is. So that when you are salt out in the earth, men are not going to be like, wow, thank you. They're going to try to get you to be like them and lose your saltiness. When you're a light shining in the darkness, the darkness isn't going to go, oh, thank you for driving me away. No, the darkness is going to try to overcome the light. So even as you're out being salt and light, you're doing so to glorify God who is in heaven, of course, that other men may glorify, with the obvious caveat and reality that they won't always give the desired response. They may, in fact, respond by reviling you, persecuting you, and uttering all kinds of evil things against you falsely for the sake of Jesus. Okay? So a very realistic uh, description, that's too weak of a word, of discipleship laid out here by our Lord. Anything we want to touch on there? Please. I was going to ask... um Sometime when a good work is perceived by the world uh, that that a believer does, it's hard to sidestep the world's, um, for the sake of a word, giving them glory personally. How, how, how would you recommend that a person deflect that glory to God? You know, I think all of what you can really do is verbal. And you simply glorify God with your mouth and direct men toward him. Now, I think in many cases, the nature of the works themselves are not going to require explanation. When you help someone who is in very dire straits, they will glorify God. Right? Oh, thank you. Thanks be to God. Is, or some, some response like that. Thank you, God. Oh, and thank you, too. <laughs> you know? So, I don't want to go too far because Jesus certainly doesn't set these limitations. But we do know from our Lord's own ministry and from the ministry of the church in Acts that very frequently who we are called to serve as Christians are the truly poor, outcast, despised, off-scouring of the earth. People who truly and desperately need help. People who other people in the world won't help. When we help those people, very frequently it is self-evident to them that this is an act and mercy of God whom they glorify because nobody else is willing to do so. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say that that's what Jesus is talking about, only that narrow kind of help. But what I am saying is that narrow kind of help helps to broaden our understanding of the way in which men glorify God. Sometimes they will simply do so because it's self-evident. Other times you will have to set them straight verbally by your word. Hey, 
the reason why I've shown you this mercy is because infinitely more mercy has been shown to me by my king. Okay? You think you're in bad circumstances. I've been in as bad circumstances or worse, just in a totally different way. And my king helped me. And he helped me through people. And now I'm simply his emissary helping you. So if we want to give thanks and glory, let's give it to God, not to me or to this organization or to this church or anything like that, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, hopefully that clarifies. I don't mean to narrow this in any way because our Lord's scope is simply not narrowed. It's universal that as we go out, we go out as salt and light into the world, um, that obviously our works, and again, our works can also be our words, like, there's no limitation put on works. We can't insert a false dichotomy and say, well, our works, not our words, that's a false dichotomy. So what we say, what we do, everything we are in the world um, is included here in the good works of verse 16. Okay, so then what is Jesus' relation to the law, to the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets. And again, in Matthew's Gospel, which has its eye toward Hebrew themes and themes of the Old Testament scriptures, obviously Jesus sitting upon a mountaintop and teaching these things authoritatively. You know, even when you compare Moses on the mountain, he's bringing down the Ten Commandments that have been written by the hand of God and given to him through intermediaries such that um, he is a messenger. With Jesus, there's no such bureaucracy. He sits on the mountain himself and opens his mouth himself and these things come forth. He is a new Moses, a the capital P prophet of which Moses um, prophesied. And he is more. And that is probably why he immediately then goes into verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, Don't think that I have come to abolish your Bible. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So understand my ministry in continuity with these things that have preceded. Understand my sitting on a mountain and speaking to you authoritatively as the climax, fulfillment, and culmination of all that has been taught in the law and the prophets. So Jesus not distancing himself. Hey, uh, hey Moses said X and I say not X. That's not what he's doing. And he's, he's simply seeing himself in uh, continuity with Moses and the prophets. Now, that is important foundationally to set up because obviously what's coming next? You have heard that it was said X, but I tell you why. Again, we're not to see him in discontinuity with Moses and the prophets. In continuity, interpreting them and these commandments in their absolute sense. Over and against the perversions of the Pharisees and the like, who have turned the commandments of God into mere external things. As if I could perfectly keep the sixth commandment if I just don't have um, an affair with my wife. Or I can perfectly keep the fifth commandment as long as I don't actually physically murder someone. That is a pharisaical misreading and misinterpretation and externalizing of Moses. Jesus takes Moses and replenishes and fulfills Moses with the true spiritual sense of the law. Such that even looking at a woman with lust in your eye or looking at your brother with murderous intent is, in fact, a violation of the commandment. Which does two things. It accuses us of our sins and the fact that we cannot keep 
the law, and so we do not have a righteousness of our own on account of the law, but it also shows us the true ontology of what it means to be good. That Jesus has come to make his disciples true light and true salt, not in a sense that we merely check the boxes off of filling an externally moral set of rules, but that our very hearts and our very eyes are to be changed and transformed such that the ultimate telos of being a disciple of Jesus is that our hearts will no longer be murderous and our eyes will no longer be filled with lust. Now, that comes to fruition only in the resurrection of our flesh. But we are on our way and that is the vision, you see. That is what Christ has given us in a sense that is now and progressing but not yet full. Okay, so important things that our Lord points out, that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. And as he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. That's, I believe the the iota is referent to the should be a Yoda. It's uh, the referent to the um, the smallest letter in Greek, and dot, I think, is the smallest letter in Hebrew. Do I have that right? Somebody want to check the study note? Yeah. Refers to the smallest. Oh, no, no, no. I don't have it quite right. Hebrew letter Yod, not the Yota of Greek, but the Hebrew letter Yod, um, that's the and then the um, even smaller marking in the sacred text. So the smallest markings of the sacred text will not pass away until all the law is accomplished or fulfilled. There, I remember my mom saying, not a jot, not a tittle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it all comes from this. Yeah, I'm just looking here. I'm trying to refresh my memory on this particular point. I, it just says iota and dot refers to the smallest Hebrew letter yod and even smaller markings in the sacred text. I don't know anything more than that, so I'm sorry I can't. Um, I can't help there. Okay, verse nineteen. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, now are we talking here only about the Ten Commandments? Do you think? I don't think so. I think we're talking about the fullness of the scriptures fulfilled in Christ, communicated through Christ, everything that Christ says. I think that we're not to relax anything that he says or teaches. I don't think specifically and narrowly the Ten Commandments are in view, although they're certainly included. Because immediately, as mentioned, we're going into the Fifth and Sixth Commandments here. But again, at this stage, I think he's referring more generally. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's the perfect setup to go into the details here. Um, One thing that I will point out, again, just in terms of the masterful and majestic structuring of this sermon that our Lord gives, these themes, um, particularly this theme, especially if you were to take the Beatitudes and the salt and the light as almost introductory, foundational to what it means to be his disciple, and then we're going to get into the specifics of that as we roll along. When you look at uh, the latter half of verse 19, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, This is precisely the note upon which Jesus ends his sermon. So when you go flip forward to Matthew chapter 7, you'll see that he 
ends his sermon in this way. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Contrasted with the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand, and he's described as hearing them but not doing them. Okay? So at the end of Jesus' sermon, hearing the words of Jesus and doing them, that's the goal. Now, with that in mind, go back to what he says here. Um, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, I think is parallel to everyone who hears these words of mine. Broader than the Ten Commandments, all right? And then whoever, back in chapter 5, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, in in chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So I think that there's an inclusio here thematically so that everything that comes from this point in chapter 5 to the close is what it are the commandments or the word of Jesus. And as his disciples, we are given to believe them, teach them, and do them. If we hear them and don't do them, then we're like the fool at the end who builds his house upon the sand only to have it washed away by the storm. There is a, an interpretive controversy in regard to uh, the least of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's connected to great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, great in the kingdom of heaven is almost universally believed you're in the kingdom. And then the division is, are those who are least in the kingdom, are they still in, but least? Or are those who in the kingdom view them as least? That is, they're outside the kingdom and viewed as least. And interpreters are divided on that point. I would venture a guess, and that's really all it is, that the parallelism ought to mitigate the and, and give the proper understanding. Okay, so you may be a Christian, that is to say, you may be saved, even while relaxing these commandments and teaching others to do so, but you're going to wind up in the kingdom but least. I think Jesus is talking about his disciples here. Whereas those disciples who do them and teach them will be called great. That's my best guess. If I had to cast my lot, that's where I'd cast it, Okay, based on the linguistic parallelism. Um, But there are many faithful who don't see it that way and see that a Christian, if he did in fact release the, uh, relax the teachings of Jesus and teach others to do so, could not be saved. Okay. If you wanted a, a, a take on this that's um, a place explicitly taught in the scriptures that parallels uh, my choice, that we're referring to Christians here, just lesser and greater Christians, First uh, Corinthians Three, Paul does something similar. Remember, there are those who build the foundation of, well, the foundation has already been built or laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And then along come those who build with wood, hay, and stubble, and those who build with gold, silver, and precious stones. The fire comes and tests the work of all. When that fire comes and consumes the wood, hay, and stubble, the foundation abides, and they are saved, and yet as ones having passed through fire. I would venture to say that that's one who relaxes the least of these commandments, that is a disciple who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. He doesn't give up on the foundation, which is Christ, but his work has been useless at best and counterproductive at worst. Okay, that's probably as good a place as any to stop because then we simply go into the teachings of Jesus, the uh, rejuvenation and proper understanding of righteousness. And um, we won't really have time to go into, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, The easy one is forensic righteousness, the blood of Jesus, the righteousness of faith. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think that that's the beginning of it. 
but then Christians, because we are granted the Holy Spirit in new hearts, there is actually a difference between a Christian's good works and an unbeliever's or Pharisee's good works, such that a good tree, a Christian, bears good fruit, and a bad tree, a Pharisee, bears bad fruit. Thus, the fruit of a disciple of Jesus has to exceed that of the fruit of a non-disciple of Jesus, and in fact does, otherwise you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that's more faithful to the actual sense of Jesus' sermon. And if you don't agree with me, then here's your, here's your homework assignment. Read on. <laughs> read on. Read the Sermon on the Mount as a unit and read it over and over and over again and read it on its own terms, not importing terms and ideas from other places. Read it on its own terms and find out where and how Jesus is preaching the gospel and of what that gospel consists. All right, the Lord be with you.